Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. I'm Sarah. How are you doing this week, Sarah? Uh, it's been an uh, interesting week at the office. Uh, yeah, it's just been very busy at the office. Lots of changes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really excited for our episode tonight. I know you are. This is all you've been talking about this whole week. <laughs> so, uh, this week we are watching Nosferatu eine Symphonie des Grounds from 1922. And that's Nosferatu, a symphony of horror. So presumably we won't have to decide whether this is a horror movie like we did with Golem. Yeah, horror's right in the title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when did you first see this film, Sarah? Or what's your first memory of this film? It was pretty early in us dating actually. Mm-hmm. And I I was not accustomed to silent films when we did that. Okay. Uh, so I found it a little boring at times, but the visual effects were still really interesting. I have a long history with this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I probably first saw it in my early teens, but I definitely knew about it before that. It was sort of a film that had a, a legend or a cachet about it from hearing about it in books on film and stuff like that that I'd read as a kid. Yeah, this film has quite the legacy. Yes, and very influential. And so I'd heard about this film and made a point of trying to track it down. And I'm pretty sure I was in maybe junior high when I first actually saw it. But I, the first version I saw is not the version we're going to watch now. I have a long history with <laughs> this film and its versions, which this film really is what taught me about silent film. It taught me about multiple versions of film. It taught me about restorations and quality. Uh, a lot of my growth and knowledge about the history of film is, is traced to my being a fan of this movie. Is this the movie that told young Ben Rowe that you wanted to be a director? No, that was Alex Proyas's iRobot adaptation from 2004, <laughs> which was so bad that I walked out of the theater going, oh, I can do that better, and wanted to, to be a filmmaker. So before we, we dive into this film, I wanted to talk a little bit about the title. Okay. The name of this film is Nosferatu, mm-hmm. which is a weird word. Nosferatu is a word that became popularized because it was used in Bram Stoker's Dracula, where he says that it's the Romanian word for undead. And of course, Transylvania, where Dracula's from, is a area in Romania. I don't think I've talked about this on the show before, but I have uh, a Romanian heritage in my family. My, my mother's family is Romanian, uh, whereas my dad's family is, is basically English. And, and Nosferatu isn't a Romanian word, mm. and it's, it's a word that like etymologists argue about constantly, because it's clear that everyone in Western Europe was confident it was a Romanian word, but it's never been attested to in any Romanian works, ever. So I just wanted to talk about where the word comes from. Okay. Best guess, if you know Romanian, about where Nosferatu comes from is probably this word, nesuferit. It's hard to translate, but it kind of means like unbearable or horrid or repugnant or pestilent or intolerable. It, <laughs> bad, uh, with kind of like a bad with a sub-meaning of like unclean. 
Okay. Um, and in Romanian, if you're saying the unclean one, you add a, another little syllable at the end of the word. Nesuferitul. Oh, so be, you add like the tool? Uh, the ul. Yeah, it ends with a T. So ul kind of would give you like a, a definitive article, like the. Um, and that often gets shortened in speech to just a U sound. So nesuferitu. Oh, okay. You see that in Dracula, actually. Uh, it's it's the, the ul in Dracula. In Romanian folklore, it gets used to refer to unu spiritu nesuferitu, uh, which is an unclean spirit, which is how you refer to an incubus or a succubus in Romanian folklore. Hmm. Of course, these are demons who uh, seduce you and draw your life force from you. Oh, so unclean because of, like, sexual activity, not because I haven't had a bath in a week. Right, yeah. And in Romanian culture, succubuses and incubuses, um, in addition to seducing you and drawing your life force from you, also suck your blood. Mm. And then, because it's a, a sex act with them, illegitimate children that a, um, union with this demon produces are called moroi. Mm, yeah. And then if you are killed by a succubus or an incubus, uh, a nesuferitu, you become a strigoi. And these are all kind of related folkloric terms that we can get into later. But the thing was, for a long time, there wasn't a, a standardized way to spell Romanian words. And so this kind of lack of standardization led to the word getting Germanicized, I guess, as der Nosferat. And from there, kind of entering into European culture by about the 1860s as being this Romanian word for vampire. Stoker seemed pretty convinced it meant not dead or undead. But where he got that impression, I don't know. But there's a lot of etymologists by the 1860s and 1880s who just assumed it was the, the Romanian word for vampire. So let's talk about vampires and vampire folklore. We haven't had a vampire movie on the podcast yet, so let's... <laughs> Let's talk about vampires, Sarah. Yeah, I think it's really interesting with this movie, too, for reasons I, I will get into. But first, with the folklore, there's so much, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> so vampires pop up in almost every culture and historical culture all over the world. But for pop culture, most of that knowledge comes from Eastern European folklore. So that's kind of what I focused on, mm -hmm. um, especially because this movie is German rather than like Chinese vampires, for example, because lots of information on Chinese vampires. <laughs> um, they hop. <laughs> yeah. If you saw a vampire, according to this folklore, uh, you'd most likely be seeing it in its coffin. It would look bloated, it would have long hair, nails, um, and have pale purplish skin. So it'd look like a corpse. Exactly, right? But like a well-fed corpse. Right. And not necessarily fangs. The creation of a vampire would come from a whole whack of things. Basically, if you looked at a corpse wrong, it might turn into a vampire. Um, so if a bird or an animal went over the corpse or the freshly dug grave, maybe it'll turn into a vampire. If the person was a dick, mm -hmm. <laughs> they might turn into a vampire. Like, yeah. just might be destined to do this. That's something I'm really familiar with, the idea that, like, the person nobody liked in the village is probably the vampire. Yeah, and this came up with the Russian Orthodox Church. If, if someone was a dissident of the church or had been excommunicated, mm. they're going to be a vampire. Yeah, being buried without proper rights was another like common one that I know about. Yeah, if you were a bastard, if you mm -hmm. were born on Saturday, if uh, you were pregnant and didn't eat enough salt, your kid might just be destined to be a vampire. Uh, if you had red hair, you might be a vampire. Sarah, is there something you need to tell me? 
Do we need to switch the icons on our <laughs> scream scene banner art? I'll just say that garlic is not allowed in this house. I oh, okay. <laughs> if you committed suicide, all these things could or would lead you to be a vampire either through choice or, for lack of a better word, destiny. Mm. But a lot of it, if you're thinking about the social norms of the time, would be you're an outsider. You might be new to the village. You might not be very popular in the congregation for mm -hmm. whatever reason. Like, if you are a bastard, as in born out of wedlock, you and your family would be ostracized by the congregation, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the telltale signs of whether someone will become a vampire is you just weren't with the cool the cool religious kids. Yeah, I mean, like, a lot of things you're mentioning were considered sins yeah. anyways, right? So it's just if you were a bad person or someone, you know... The... A bad person according to the rules of the church. Right, or you just weren't <laughs> well-liked. Yeah. How you would identify whether a vampire had been created mm. um, is if there was a lot of widespread sickness or death uh, whether that's death of, you know, your cattle, your sheep, whatever, but especially of your neighbors and the person who died's family. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Poltergeist activity, uh, feeling like like when you're asleep, someone's pressing down on you, but all, all of this activity happening after someone has died. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you bring up poltergeists because, you know, the other thing is is before Hollywood came in, a lot of the lines between poltergeist, vampire, werewolf, zombie... Witches. Witches, yeah, are all kind of blurred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In Ukraine, a vampire had a red face and a tiny tail. In other places in Eastern Europe, uh, if someone was a witch, they would be a vampire when they died. Things like that. Uh, in terms of weaknesses uh, with the folklore, you know, you got your classic garlic, crucifix, rosary, holy water, consecrated ground, salt, wild rose and hawthorn wood... And what kept coming up, and this was even in Chinese folklore, is if you suspected someone would become a vampire, after you bury them, sprinkle grains of rice or salt mm -hmm. or sand over the ground because they would have to count every piece of grain before they could pass by. Right, which means that the Sesame Street vampire is very folklorically accurate. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> when people would be buried, uh, they would be buried upside down. Mm -hmm. um, they would have cut tendons at their knees, so it's harder to get up and walk around. Scythes and sickles would be put within the coffin on either their belly or their throat, so when you go to get up, you just accidentally cut decapitate your yourself, yeah. um, as well as around the around the gravestone and in the graveyard as well, to uh, dissuade... Demons from coming by to possess your corpse to then turn you into a vampire, but also to be like, hey guy, get back in your grave. Mm -hmm. It kept coming up that vampires would be active at night, but they weren't necessarily vulnerable to sunlight. Yeah. And it seemed more as like a thing of like, don't go around when people will be able to see you and be like, hey, Bob, weren't you dead last week? Yeah. A lot of these old traditions about monsters and demons have a lot of symbolic, you know, importance, right? Like, you know, the, the weaknesses that a vampire has are to a lot of um, church-related items for obvious reasons. But, like, garlic, for example, was a preservative, right? So it kept your food healthy, and so kept you healthy. So it is something that you can use against the things that are unclean. Or going around at night, because that's just when it's dark <laughs> out and there's no electric light, so... <laughs> My hands are tied, it's nighttime. Yeah, exactly. The sun went down. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's just dark and it's scary. And you're right, um, the early mythos, you know, sunlight doesn't kill them, and that's in fact something we're going to talk a little bit about more later. 
As far as uh, trying to figure out what might have spurred on uh, some of these identifying features of a vampire or um, mythical explanations or, mm-hmm. or whatever, when you're decomposing, you your body bloats. When there's so many stories of like, oh, we think this person's a vampire, we open up their coffin, they look well fed because they're bloated, they would stake them uh, either in like the mouth, the heart, or the belly, and what looked like fresh blood would come out of any of those places. There would be moaning because of the gases leaving your mouth. That's all just decomposition. Yeah. The idea of longer hair and nails and teeth, well, your skin and gums and everything retract. Yes. So it just looks longer. There's also people tended to get buried alive. Sometimes it was just really hard to tell whether someone was unconscious or dead. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of, you know, good medical know-how. Yeah, and so when they would open up the coffin and see, like, people scratching at things, it's not because they're vampires, it's because you accidentally buried them alive. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you bring up the, the staking uh, with the, the stake, because, of course, that's become such a, like, aha, we've staked you, and then you're instantly dead, but that's not really what staking the corpse was about. No, it was about uh, nailing them to the floor. Yeah, it's about <laughs> like... holding them down so that you can you can chop their head off. That was the thing that kills them. Yeah, exactly. Also, fire. Yes. Uh, Everything burns. Yep, exactly. Cremation was like the way to dispose of a vampire. And then you had to you had to do something special with the ashes too, right? I didn't see anything about that. I remember being told that you had to you cut their head off to kill them. Then you had to burn them so that there was no remains. And then you had to take the ashes and throw them in a river so that they would, like, you know, disperse. wash out downstream and disperse, yeah. There was stuff about pouring boiling water Oh. on uh, these corpses. <laughs> um, yeah, and then, of course, which we'll definitely see in Nosferatu, is the idea of contagion, uh, both with plague, cholera, and rabies, which was... Okay. Uh, a surprising thing. I had never seen rabies linked to vampirism. Hmm. Um, but I guess with the hypersensitivity that comes from rabies of being sensitive to light and strong tastes like garlic. Hmm. Um, also, increased sexual activity. Oh. <laughs> I guess that's a thing with rabies. I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's the folklore of vampires based in like Eastern Europe. Again, looking at stuff before uh, a lot of the literature around vampires came out. So basically what you're saying is, you know, disease comes to your village, people start dying, you blame the person nobody liked who recently died, and you go and stake their corpse and everyone feels better. Well, it's also <laughs> like the first person to have died. Sure. Uh, which I'll, I'll, I have a couple examples of that later, but yeah, if you were like the first person to die, and then suddenly like everyone else started dying, right. um, they'd be like, Ben... Must be a vampire. I never really liked him anyways. <laughs> Did you know he was born out of wedlock? <laughs> he has red hair in his beard. Fuck, okay, we need to go to bed. Like, dig up his corpse. Yeah, exactly. It'd be kind of like that. Exactly. Um, did you see much about the difference between... I'll say the difference between Slavic vampires and Romanian traditions. The Romanians are very hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really go into a whole lot of detail between the differences. Well, just to explain some of the terms I used, I guess, at the the start of the episode then. At the start of the episode, I I talked about where the word Nosferatu comes from. That Nesuferitu is a term that would get used to refer to an incubus or a succubus type monster. And and like I was also saying, like the, the, the boundaries between what makes something one type of monster versus another aren't really 
in effect, so there's yeah. a lot of overlap between witches and werewolves and, and vampires, but the basic idea was that there was two main types of vampire. And I mean, these beliefs were were deeply held and widespread. Every rural village in Romania believed in this stuff. Yeah, emphasis on the rural. Yes, yes, emphasis on the rural. Absolutely, this is a rural thing. Uh, small villages, small communities, where everyone knows each other and that sort of thing. But So like I sort of said at the beginning, um, you know, the children uh, produced by a union with a, a, a Nesuferitu might be called a Moroi. And Moroi is like a a living vampire. So you do all the things that a vampire does, but you're you're not dead. You're you're alive. And then after you die, or if you were killed by a Nesuferitu, you might be a Strigoi. And the Strigoi is a dead vampire. So they're doing all the things that a vampire does, but they're dead. And they're also kind of like poltergeists. They've got poltergeist-like powers in that they're kind of a, a, an angry spirit, whereas the Moroi are also kind of like werewolves because they've got some shape-shifty, turn-into-animal powers. Um, so that's just sort of what, what's going on with those creatures. Whereas vampire as a word, like, that's not a Romanian word. That's a Slavic language word that kind of has versions in all these different Slavic languages. And I guess it's worth saying that Romania as a country is surrounded by Slavic countries that speak Slavic-based languages. But the Romanian language itself is, is a Romance language. It comes from, from Latin. Yeah, I did try to look up what the difference was between vampire and strigoi and morvoi. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess vampire comes from Hungarian, vampire. It was kind of like a supernatural thing. Mm-hmm. And before that was the Turkish word for witch. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. It, so again, uh, a lot of blurred boundaries with these. Yeah, they, the, the monster manual hadn't been written yet. So. <laughs> Speaking of writing a monster manual, vampires didn't really come into fiction until what's called the, the vampire craze of the 1720s and 30s. And I love that it's called the vampire craze, as if it's, like, a passing phase. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this this was really, really interesting to find out, because I did not know about this stuff. Okay. So this vampire craze is a way to describe how the more Western European countries finally learned about vampires. Mm-hmm. Um, so places like England, France, Germany. And it came because of these official investigations of two different cases of suspected vampires in uh, Serbian villages in oh, Austria. yeah, okay. The first one was uh, with a gentleman named Pitar Blagojevic, who died in 1725. After he died, there were nine deaths, each around 24 hours apart. Huh. And as each of these people were on their deathbed, they claimed that Peter did it. Uh, or, like, they had been harassed by Pitar the night before, or something like that. Right. And the official authorities got involved, and physicians got involved. And, of course, the rural villagers wanted their priest to be involved as well, mm-hmm. as, like, the leader of the community. Mm-hmm. So there was an official exhumation, and dude had all the signs of a vampire. Mm-hmm. Of being bloated, and, like, with the stakes, having, like, the screaming, and, and the blood, and everything. Uh, so, Which, like you said, just means he was a corpse. Yeah. Of a certain age after death. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is that um, they dug up corpses of around the same age, and they were far more decomposed than this dude. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so many factors with what can affect your decomposition process, and it's just really a, a, they hadn't fully understood all of that stuff, um, because the ground where you happen to be buried in might be a bit more dry than the earth that's like a block away. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, so they, you know, took care of him, kind of wrapped that up. Um, but because it was so official, that got covered in the newspapers and just spread. Mm. It didn't help that a year later, in 1726, a guy named Arnant Paul died. For about a year or so, just under a year, uh, there were 16 deaths, all linking back to Arnant. Again, they did an official investigation and um, physicians were involved. He screamed when they were staking him. So it seemed like, cool, uh, I think we're, we've cleaned everything up, whatever. Five years later, same village. Ugh, these guys. <laughs> People just started dropping like flies. And there were some suspected vampires, but no clear person. Mm -hmm. um, and it was kind of like this pestilence had come over the town. They finally figured out, quote unquote, figured out, like, what was causing this. People had ate an ox that Arnaud had killed. And so they ate this tainted meat, turned them into vampires later. Like, it incubated in them and turned them into mm. vampires later. And then caused this uh, death spree five years later. So this is how it was still this old vampire we already took care of's fault. Exactly. Because you ate an ox that he killed. Exactly. We are, they are stretching <laughs> real far on that one. Because these were official investigations, it was really covered by the news and was like the first recorded incident of vampires in places other than rural word of mouth. Yeah. So with that spreading westward, the first piece of fiction around a vampire is 1748. So about 20-ish years after the death of these two guys in mm -hmm. the news coverage. Um, it's a poem by Heinrich Ossenfelder. And what's interesting is in this first poem, there's a sexual element already. A guy has, uh, he, he's in love with this girl. She rejects him because she's like, no, I need to be a good Christian like my mom says. And he stalks her every night, drinks her blood. It's very sexual. And it's an attempt to lure her from Christianity. Uh-huh. Yeah, that fits. Yeah. <laughs> and that was so interesting that, like, even the first case of vampires in fiction, mm -hmm. it has that sexual element, even though all of the folklore and everything has not had it. Yeah, other Except than for the, maybe the succubus stuff. Yeah, other than the, the incubus-succubus connection in Romania, yeah. Uh, that uh, poem is from Germany. Um, as far as the first piece of English literature goes, we have Robert Southley's Thalaba the Destroyer from 1797, um, and around the same time, you could say Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem, Christabel, from the late 1700s, is dealing with a vampire, but it's kind of like, is it a ghoul? Is it a vampire? Mm. Who knows? But that poem, Christabel, is actually a huge influence on Carmilla in 1872 by yeah. Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu. Carmilla's kind of a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a, a major piece of vampire fiction. Yeah. Carmilla's... 1872, and then we have Stoker's Dracula, 1897. There's a vampire piece that came out of the famous bunch of people scared in a storm incident that, that produced Frankenstein? Nope. Don't know what you're talking about. Okay, so, well, you know how, like, the story behind how Frankenstein was written was that, like, Mary Shelley and Percy and Lord Byron and another friend of theirs were, like, cooked up in a castle, and there was the big thunderstorm, and they all thought, oh, let's, for fun, all tell a ghost story to each other, right? Yeah. And Mary Shelley went off to write Frankenstein. So one of the other people who was at that party went off to write a piece of vampire fiction. Are you talking about Lord Byron's vampire thing? So it was um, John Polidori wrote The Vampire as a short story. It was started by, I guess, Byron, but he didn't finish it. 
Mm-hmm. And so Polidori finished it, and it stars a vampire called Lord Ruthven. And the reason I wanted to kind of just bring it up is because Lord Ruthven as a character sort of established what the stock character of a male vampire was like in terms of what their characteristics were. And all of Lord Ruthven's characteristics are copied off of Lord Byron. So, like, all of the, like, angsty, broody, dark nature of the character is all just ripped off of Lord Byron. And that's how his own personality became part of, like, what the stock character of a vampire is like. Oh, boy. That that does not surprise me. Like, the reason the term Byronic hero can be applied to, like, so many characters is because, like, I feel like they all these people writing in, in like, his writing circle were just making fun of him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, like, that entire circle were pretty hardcore into goth stuff. <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, people should read, read up on that. Yeah. It's intense. Anyways. We might come back to Lord Ruthven and Lord Byron when we get to some sexier vampire movies. Maybe. Yeah, so then we get to Stoker's Dracula in, like, 1897. And despite these, even that first poem from 1748, uh, so, like, 150 years earlier, um, already having this, like, sexual element to it, Stoker's Dracula is kind of the most definitive version of vampires having this sexual undertones, uh, which I think is interesting. So it has the idea of the vampirism and possession of hypnotizing people with Renfield. A lot of the themes that come up with Stoker's Dracula is this immigrant comes to Britain, is very sexual, and uh, threatens the male character's masculinity and like mm-hmm. things like that, um, but also brings disease. Uh, and this tie of like sexuality and disease is really interesting because syphilis and not so much sexual, but tuberculosis, mm-hmm. uh, being in close quarters with people, that's all through Victorian Britain. <laughs> right. Right? So sure. I think it, it's really interesting to think about those overlaps. Do, do you want me to go over, like, the plot? Let's, in the broadest strokes possible. Um, real estate agent goes to Dracula's castle. Uh, Dracula's like, hey, yeah, I'll pay you a ton of money if you help me get over there. Dude's like, Cool. Dracula gets to England, uh, real estate agent is now gone a little insane because of all of this. Um, I know I'm mixing up real estate agents here, but I'm trying to go quick. As Dracula is in England, he causes some havoc, uh, turns one lady into a vampire, um, and is stalking another. People freak out, uh, the guys go, this ain't cool, uh, stalking our ladies, um, goes and attacks Dracula, realizes what he is, thanks to the help of semi-mad scientist Van Helsing, uh, and they go and kill Dracula. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so wives, vampiric wives are involved. As a story about Romanian immigration, as a story about kind of the threat of this Romanian sexual attack on English women or whatever, and myself being the product of, like, an English-Romanian union. Like, I've always <laughs> felt, like, a, a a certain, like, affinity for Dracula yeah. as a novel. It's it's my <laughs> novel. Yeah. It has that common theme that we've seen in movies past. Like, I know we're talking about the novel, but of immigrants bringing threat of disease. Mm-hmm. Um, disease came to mind because of Phantom Carriage. Uh, the whole immigrant stuff coming from, like, Everything, Everything we've watched so far. Except for Phantom Carriage, I suppose. Yeah. There's no Im- weird no, immigrant that, things with that one. but that strictly Sweden. And despite Dracula being so... Like, Stoker's Dracula being so definitive and, like, the sexual undertones, it's so interesting that, like, 
you have this figure coming from Romania where it's the rural stories about it are so based in like sickness Mm -hmm. and then when he comes to the big city (laughs) he gets his groove back let's say we sex it up yeah and it's really interesting with dracula too with like the tension between the rural communities and the villagers being like here have this crucifix and like real estate agent being like being kind of taken aback by the superstitious nature of these rural villagers because he's in the big city where they believe in higher things and science and mm-hmm. such. Yeah. There's a lot going on in that novel. Yeah. There's a lot of kind of related themes of yeah, rural versus urban, superstition versus science, immigrant versus Englander. So as much as all of our talk about Bram Stoker's Dracula can be saved for when we do Bela Lugosi's Dracula, mm-hmm. um, the reason we're bringing up with Nosferatu is because Nosferatu is based off of, sort of, the book. Yeah, Nosferatu's the first vampire movie we're covering on the list, which is why we, we went into discussing you know, the history of vampirism and its, its development through literature, and the movie itself is an adaptation of Dracula. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you want to tell us about how they tried to get around paying copyright? Well, our story begins with this guy named Albin Grau, and he was born in 1884, and his whole life he was a member of something called the Fraternitis Saturni, which was a German occultist group. <laughs> so these were guys who were following Aleister Crowley and the whole turn-of-the-century occultist movement. Uh, while he was serving in the German army in World War I, Grau uh, stayed with a Serbian farmer who told him that his father was a vampire. After the war, Grau became an architect and then later went into set design for film. And he wanted to incorporate his occultist beliefs into his film work. So in order to do that, he founded his own film studio, (laughs) uh, which he called Prana Film, after the Buddhist concept of prana, the life force. Uh, And he did this so that he could produce occult films. And the plan was that for the studio's inaugural effort, he would be both the producer and the art director for the film. So Grau hired uh, Henrik Galeen due to Galeen's work on The Golem in 1915 and thus past experience on films with occultist themes. Uh, Grau remembered that he had had this wartime encounter with the undead and asked Galeen to write a story about vampires. Dracula was the only literary work that Galeen was familiar with to use as a source, but Prana didn't have the rights to Dracula, so Galeen just went through the story and changed the setting from England to Germany and changed the names of all the characters, so, like, Count Dracula gets renamed to Count Orlok, uh, simplified the story so there's way less characters because there's a lot of ancillary <laughs> characters in Dracula. Uh, he introduced new themes such as, as plague and the spread of disease, And he wrote the script in a literary expressionist style that had a tightly controlled poetic rhythm. Uh, And then they titled it Nosferatu, uh, after the word used in Stoker's novel as uh, the Romanian term for a vampire. So to direct, uh, Grau hired F.W. Murnau, who was a young director who had already done some work in the horror genre. Murnau was born in 1888 as Friedrich Wilhelm Plumpe? Uh, but he changed his name to Murnau after the town where he grew up, uh, perhaps Probably. for obvious reasons. Yeah, good, good choice, dude. Uh, he studied philology 
and art history at the University of Berlin, then later studied literature and acting at the University of Heidelberg, then joined the acting company of Max Reinhardt, who was like the top theater director of the early 20th century. During World War I, he served with distinction in the German Air Force as a pilot, and after the war is when he went into film. His first ten films were released between 1919 and 1922, of which only three survive. The rest are all lost. So Nosferatu was Murnau's 11th film, and he wanted to shoot it in a naturalistic style to feel like it, it took place in the real world, despite the fact that his writer was an expressionist and his producer was an occultist. Most of the movie was shot on location, which upset Albin Grau's desire to influence the film's art style with his set design. So Grau's big contribution would be the props, uh, the backdrop art, uh, the design of the vampire himself, and the look of the vampire. The film's German scenes were largely shot in Wismar and Lübeck, which are in northern Germany, while northern Czechoslovakia and the abandoned castles there dubbed in for Transylvania. Murnau storyboarded the film extensively, uh, he used a metronome on set to control the pace of the acting. He also completely rewrote the ending. Oh. In the novel Dracula, uh, Dracula is killed when he's stabbed through the heart with a bowie knife. In Henrik Galeen's ending, uh, the vampire is destroyed by being staked through the heart with a wooden stake. Murnau changed the ending so that the vampire would be destroyed by the light of the sun. Uh, and in prior works, as you pointed out, sunlight weakened vampires, but it didn't kill them. This is when the whole idea of Sunlight Kills Vampires starts, and it's Murnau's addition to the film. Hmm. The film's cinematographer was Fritz Arno Wagner, who was considered one of the top two German cinematographers at the time, along with Karl Freund, who we talked about earlier on a previous episode. Uh, Wagner worked with Murnau on two of his earlier films, and for Nosferatu, he developed several new camera techniques in order to depict the otherworldliness of the villain. Uh, these are techniques such as using stop motion, uh, negative printing, fast and slow motion photography, uh, as well as a dark, moody, shadow-heavy lighting style. I think probably for this film more than any other, it's maybe about time that we talked about tinting in silent films. Yeah, that's true. It's been in previous films, like especially The Golem, but uh, yeah, we haven't really talked about it. So, old silent films, if you've been watching along with us, you'll notice that they aren't strictly in black and white. Um, they're monochromatic, but they're tinted or toned uh, to different colors. Um, there's a difference between tinting and toning, but it's not important. <laughs> um, in the 1920s, a, a kind of standard had developed about what these different colors meant, uh, so that the audience would understand that they, they served a narrative purpose. So, for example, red might mean uh, a fire or firelight. Um, you know, orange might be more like um, the light of a candle, contained firelight in a candle or a fireplace. Yellow would be, you know, the natural light of the sun. Green was often stylistic and used to indicate evil or villainy. Blue meant nighttime because there wasn't sufficient technology in the 1920s to really shoot at night. They couldn't make the lights bright enough to expose anything. So you would shoot it in the daytime and then tint it blue so that people would know, oh, it's supposed to be nighttime. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, sort of a, an indigo, a deep 
kind of purple might be um, sort of indicating that the characters were in the dark and there was no natural light source, but we were still able to see them anyways. And then a lighter kind of violet would be sunset or sunrise. Mm -hmm. And we bring this up when talking about Nosferatu because there's a lot of scenes where that vampire is walking around in daylight, even though the, the ending of the movie hinges on the idea that sunlight kills a vampire. But the scenes are tinted blue, and an audience at the time would have known that meant this is nighttime. Mm -hmm. To play Count Orlok, their vampire, they cast uh, Max Shrek. Yeah, a real vampire, right? We can maybe talk about that more when we get to that movie. <laughs> Shrek was an acclaimed member of Max Reinhardt's acting troupe since 1902, so he and Murnau would have already known each other. Uh, he was well known and respected as an expressionist actor, appearing in the early plays of Bertolt Brecht. Nosferatu was his third film. Gustav von Wangenheim played the film's romantic protagonist, Hutter, and he was a German nobleman and actor from a family of nobleman German actors. All right. He was also a member of the Communist Party and <laughs> fled to the USSR when the Nazis came to power. Uh, maybe not the best place to flee to? Anyways. It didn't work out for him uh, during the Stalinist purges. I'll just say that. And then uh, we also have the return of John Gatoet uh, in this film. Oh. Uh, he plays Professor Bulver. Who, who was he before? Uh, Scapinelli in Student of Prague, and he was the barber in Genuina. Right. So Nosferatu was heavily advertised by Alvin Grau, uh, as you do when you're producing your first feature film. Uh, there were articles, production updates, stills uh, appearing in German film magazines. Uh, the film premiered at the Berlin Zoological Gardens, at an event called the Festival of Nosferatu, with guests encouraged to dress in mid-19th century costume. That's amazing. The film had a score uh, composed by Hans Erdmann, which was, of course, performed live uh, with the film, but was written specifically for it. The film ended up catapulting Murnau into the public eye as a major director. From this point on, he's one of the top German directors, and his filmography after this is you know, impeccable in terms of classic after classic. Uh, the movie got tons of press coverage and publicity. However, critical reaction in Germany was mixed. The film was praised for its visual style and its moody nature shots, uh, but there was also criticism that the film's technical perfection, that it was so well lit and clear, didn't fit its horror theme. Uh, specifically that the vampire uh, was too well seen in too many of the shots to be scary. That's really funny because, like, the iconic shots of it are in shadow with, like, its fingernails mm -hmm. oh, extending past and a lot of shadow shots. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the heavy press coverage of the film had its downsides. News of the film and its big premiere and its uh, critical acclaim ended up reaching Florence Stoker, uh, who was the widow of <laughs> Bram Stoker, uh, she was living in the UK, and she was financially struggling at the time. Her husband had passed away, and she didn't have much income coming in. Uh, so she sued the shit out of this film. The lawsuit dragged on to 1925, with the end result being that Prana Film declared bankruptcy in order to avoid paying her. And the courts ordered all prints of the film destroyed. However, the lawsuit had dragged on so long that some prints had made their way to France... Uh, which did not recognize English copyright law, and to the U.S., where the film was screened unsuccessfully in 1929 with all the character names changed back to their Dracula versions. 
1929 screenings of the film were unsuccessful because by then sound film had come out in the States. Oh. These prints that existed in America and France kind of ended up becoming forgotten, filed away in archives, and all the other prints were destroyed. So the film was pretty much assumed lost until about the 1960s when a lot of the prints were rediscovered. Uh, and the movie sort of gained a cult following among horror fans and film historians and the late-night movie crowd. The public domain prints that circulated for a long time were in very rough shape, uh, and it took a long time for conservation and restoration efforts to produce a version of the film that's true to its original appearance. In the meantime, from the 1960s to today, the public domain distribution that disseminated the film into widespread cultural consciousness uh, ended up turning it into a classic and a very influential, well-known film. So it's in the public domain. Mm -hmm. Are we watching it through YouTube again? Because Nosferatu is in the public domain and because it's a cult film, there's a lot of versions kicking around out there. Yeah. You know, I've owned this movie on DVD four times, and every time it was sort of a better version than the one before. The version that we're going to watch is the, the latest DVD version. It's called the Restored Authorized Edition from Kino, and it has the original tinting, it has the original title cards, it has the original score by Hans Erdmann restored, it has all of the lost scenes, quote-unquote, restored, they're not really lost anymore. Uh, it's the perfect version of the film. If you're watching along with us, that version is available to screen on YouTube, um, but it's paid. Uh, it's a $4 rental. But as I've said in previous episodes, it's worth supporting these restoration efforts, uh, and it's worth seeing the best possible versions of these films. Uh, so it's this Restored Authorized Ultimate Edition version that we will be watching, uh, and you can watch along with us on YouTube uh, just by watching the version of Nosferatu, the paid rental version. And you can find it on YouTube by checking out our website. We have a playlist going of all of the movies we watch. Right. Uh, so join along with us. Uh, this is a great film if you've never seen it, and a great rewatch if it's been a while for you. Yeah. Uh, so you guys will hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back. See you on the other side. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Nosferatu from 1922 by F.W. Murnau. Ben, third thoughts? How many times have you seen this movie? Fifth thoughts? Mm. Yeah, I have many <laughs> thoughts. Um, before we get to the traditional plot summary, yeah. I want to talk just briefly about the pacing. This movie has like a very slow and deliberate pacing. You kind of talked about, before the break, about Murnau having a metronome on set. Mm-hmm. The film's divided into five acts, roughly about two reels each. I would say this film is paced kind of similar to Student of Prague, in the sense that we kind of start in a rather real-world, tranquil, idyllic kind of setting, and then we slowly ramp up the supernatural and the horrific with each of the five acts. I would agree with that. Yeah, the thing that might strike someone watching this movie if they're more familiar with either the novel Dracula or the other adaptations of Dracula that are out there is the first four 
out of the five acts of this film cover the first eight chapters of a 27-chapter novel. <laughs> so I find myself wondering, did Henrik Galeen simply find this opening sequence of Stoker's work the most interesting, or did he just never finish reading the book? <laughs> Because there's, like, nothing from later on. Like, after those four acts and that final fifth act, that's when the story goes way off the rails from what happens in Dracula. Mm -hmm. It would make sense as to why it feels like there's just too much going on by the time that it's the fifth act. It's like, why why do we care about Nock running around? Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that later, too. And, like, the family friend lady mm -hmm. yeah. being freaked out like yeah there's a there's a lot of stuff that feels like if you were starting to adapt subplots that became important later but you never knew how those subplots turned out so they just end up <laughs> as like they're like appendixes in this film they're just vestigial remnants of things so let's let's do the plot summary you and me cool Stoker's novel starts with Jonathan Harker the real estate agent protagonist of the story en route to Count Dracula's castle in Transylvania. Murnau's version starts instead with Hutter and his wife Ellen as like a happy couple in the fictional German town of Visburg. And like shows us many scenes of them like happy and cute, and, cute and, and idyllic. The novel is structured in an epistolary format, which means it's a series of letters and mm -hmm. diary entries and journal entries. The movie is structured as a historical account of the plague coming to Wisburg. And the other thing that's interesting about that is the, the novel was contemporary, written in 1897, like you said, and it's set in 1897. This film is set in 1838. Like, it's all way back in the past. I suspect that's so that they can tie it to the plague more... Deliberately. More convincingly than trying to say that, like, oh, there's the plague in 1922 or whatever. <laughs> well. <laughs> so, yeah, good point, eh? <laughs> Uh, I have some things about that, but yeah. So yeah, so Hutter works for this guy, Nock, who runs a real estate agency, I guess. Uh, and Nock has a, like, a letter or a contract that's all written in occultist writing from Alban Grau's Occult Society. So real as in these were notes and stuff from a real occult society, whether or not the occult is real is unrelated. Yeah, so like if you were a fellow occultist watching this movie, you would you would know what these symbols meant, but otherwise they're just gobbledygook to everybody else. Uh, so he's got this letter in occult writing from uh, Count Orlock, who lives in Transylvania, and he wants to move to Visburg and specifically move into the house across the river from Hutter's house, and Hutter's sent to go to Transylvania and make the deal. And they specifically say stuff like that Transylvania is the land of thieves and phantoms. And even when he's, like, saying goodbye to his wife, he's like, don't worry, honey, like, I'm only going to the land of thieves and phantoms. Yeah, he's so goddamn oblivious. I'm the protagonist. I'm the lead character. Hutter is best described perhaps as a dopey moron. Yeah, I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah, meanwhile, his wife Ellen is, like, this kind of, like, dour troubled goth chick who's so pure and innocent that she doesn't even like it when you pick flowers because you've killed them. I wasn't sure if they were trying to code her as mentally ill. Yeah, I have some stuff to talk about with that a bit later. Yeah, um, because like women were considered mentally ill 
for a whole <laughs> variety of things, including wanting the right to vote, you know? like Yeah, I, I mean, like, there was a good period of time where if you were a woman, that was, like, a definition of mentally ill. So, so Hutter leaves her with some family, with some friends of theirs, uh, while he goes on this business trip. And he, he goes, like, an overland route to Transylvania, which, like, if you look at a map, that is the way to go to Transylvania if you are in Germany. Um, so he goes there and we start to get some typical Dracula scenes that you'd be used to from other versions. He stays at an inn overnight. The villagers are like, hey man, don't go to that castle. He's like, too bad. His There's a wolf kind of stalking around the horses. Uh, uh, I think it's like a jackal or a hyena that's, <laughs> that's playing a werewolf. Yeah, well, cause like... It makes sense to use some kind of, like, exotic-looking animal, yeah. like a hyena, to play a werewolf. Yeah. So, Hutter takes, like, a carriage over to Orlok's castle, and, you know, we get the bit where the carriage is like, yeah, we're not going to take you any further, and he transfers to another carriage that's driven by a dude who's totally not Count Orlok, <laughs> uh, and he gets this weird, crazy carriage ride that's done in fast motion, and, like, negative printing, and, like, weird effects, and they show up at the castle, and he meets Orlok. And Orlok's like, yeah, um, I don't have any servants because it's, it's midnight and they're all asleep. Don't ask questions. They hang out all night. Hutter falls asleep. And when he wakes up the next morning, he has uh, bite marks on his neck. Yeah, and at one point during dinner, he cuts himself and Orlok, like, sucks his thumb in, <laughs> like, a... That sounds really sexual. I mean, like, he just, like, lunges for the thumb and then, like, Hutter's freaked out by it. Yeah, um, and the next morning, you know, Hutter sees the two marks on his neck and... Because Hutter's a moron, he's just like, oh, whatever, they must have big mosquitoes around here. La 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 la. Yeah. And then the next night that he stays there, that's when Orlok, like, really tries to attack him in the night and freaks Hutter out. But he's stopped because Orlok has a unexplained telepathic connection with Ellen back in Germany? Yeah, it seemed like it's Ellen's connection to Hutter. Hmm that he picks up on because of blood things? I don't know. Uh, well, like, she gets up in the middle of the night and freaks out the people she's staying with. They call a doctor, and he's like, oh, it's just blood congestion. But the whole time, she's, like, crying out for Hutter and, like, yelling out all these things, and then Orlok just backs off and doesn't eat Hutter. So I guess she, like, Lily Pottered him? Yeah, the power of love. Right. The next day, like, Hutter's like, well, I'm getting, I'm getting out of here. So he, he looks and he finds that, yeah, Orlok sleeps in uh, a coffin in the basement. And it's like, all right, it's time to leave. So Hutter pieces out from the castle. And Orlok also leaves to go move into his new house in, in, in Visburg. I just want to point out that, like, Orlok takes the most roundabout way of getting from Transylvania to Germany that you could possibly take. Because he goes by boat. Well, you need to have the boat stuff in there because you're adapting Dracula. Dracula, and it makes sense. But isn't, like, Germany is pretty much a landlocked country, right? Well, Germany has a northern shore. To take a boat from Transylvania to uh, Visburg, the film's set in 1838. In 1838, Transylvania was a principality in the Kingdom of Hungary. Visburg's a fictional city, but the, the movie was set in Wismar, which is a port city. Uh, and Wismar, in 1838, was in the Grand Duchy of Mecklenburg, but it wasn't part of the Grand Duchy. It was actually a dominion of the Swedish Empire. So to get from one place to the other, you would have to go over land. Uh, Transylvania is in northwestern Romania. 
So you'd have to go through all of Romania to get to Romania's eastern coast, which is on the Black Sea. Now you're on the Black Sea, you have to sail south from the Black Sea past Istanbul into the Mediterranean Ocean. Then you have to sail west through the entire Mediterranean Ocean to the Straits of Gibraltar, then sail north up the coast of France past Belgium, over, up, and around Denmark, and then you get to that point where it's Sweden and a little bit of water in the North Sea and then Germany, and that's where you get to Germany. Like, it is Why? roundabout. Why? I suspect it's because you might have less customs inspections of your cargo full of vampires if you don't have to go through a bunch of overland routes. Yeah, but you still you end up going through like two countries already. Yeah, it's 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 just so they can do the boat stuff, obviously. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, Which, like, to be honest, is, like, the best stuff in this movie. Yeah, for sure. Hutter's getting back to Germany by land, so the movie makes a point of saying that Orlok's, like, foul magic is making his boat go faster so they can get back to Germany at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then this is about when all the boat stuff happens. Yeah, it's so well done and creepy. So, like, as they're loading up the boxes of dirt into the ship, the sailors are, like boxes of dirt for experimental purposes what's up with that and then they tip one over and in the dirt are rats just like squirming about and they freak out understandably throughout the voyage one sailor gets sick then it just kind of goes downhill from there but the pinnacle of this whole part of being on the ship is it's just the captain and the first mate left uh the first mate grabs an axe and he's like if i don't come back in 10 minutes you know something's wrong. He goes down and he like breaks open one of the coffins of dirt and it's just rats and they're just pouring out. I don't have a thing about rats or anything like that, but that really freaks me out. Mm. Yeah, just pouring out and then Orlok pops up out of one of the coffins and like this really neat thing. Also earlier in the, on the ship, there's like this double exposure thing of Orlok just like mm-hmm. chilling as if he's like a phantom or a ghost. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that's really cool. Anyways, first mate freaks out seeing Orlok just pop out and runs and jumps off the ship, yep. basically committing suicide. But he's, like, running from terror. He rolled, like, a nat one on his <laughs> wisdom check. So the captain sees this and he's like, shit, stops himself to the, the steering wheel. Mm-hmm. Out comes Orlok just being creepy as fuck. Uh, it's so good and it's so, like, tense. The music's just going. You just see, like, a shadow overcome the captain. You don't actually see what happens to him, but you know what happens. Next thing you know, with the ship, it's coming into the port. Everyone's gone. So the ship gets into Visburg around the same time that Hutter gets back. And while he's been gone, in a subplot that we don't see in this movie, Nock, his boss, who had set up the deal with Orlok, has gone crazy and been committed to a sanitarium and is doing the Renfield shtick about eating flies and spiders and blood is life and all this sort of stuff. And he senses Orlok's approach. He's really just a way for us to know what's going on with Orlok. There's a lot of characters whose job is just to deliver exposition. You've got the the overarching narration, which is this account of the Black Death in Visburg, which is clearly from someone who uh, lived in that city. Then you've got characters like Professor Bulver, who is just there to say, there are creatures in nature who are like vampires, so maybe vampires aren't so far-fetched. You've got characters like Dr. Seifers, who's just there to comment on what's going on with Nock. You've got the two friends who are really just there to comment on what's going on with Ellen. You've got the handy-dandy book of vampire exposition that... We cut to constantly. Yeah, that Hutter finds in a, a hotel in Transylvania and reads throughout the movie. And at a certain point, 
the movie decides Hutter isn't the protagonist anymore, Ellen is. And you know when that happens, because Hutter stops reading the book, and Ellen starts reading the book, and she learns all the secrets about vampires. Uh, Orlock gets to town, he sets up in the house across from Hutter and Ellen, and he knows Hutter, obviously, and he's seen a picture of Ellen earlier in the story when Hutter was at his castle. So we know that Orlock wants Ellen, but he takes his sweet time getting to her because he decides that he's going to just kill everyone else in the town first because there's this whole long section where everyone thinks that the plague has come and everyone is dying of what they think is the plague, but what we know is Orlock. And it's bodies. Yeah. Like, it's a lot of people... They do it in a clever way of we follow this guy marking doors and we see him skip a door because, like, someone waves from the window. But, like, that's the one door on the block that he doesn't mark. Like, it's yeah, and <laughs> overwhelming. There's the other scene that's really, or the other shot that's really good where it's Ellen looking outside the window mm. and it's just a bunch of undertakers marching like a parade of coffins down the street. Yeah, it's... It's chilling, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's done really well. So finally, Orlok decides that it's it's Ellen eating time, and by this time, the Book of Vampire exposition has told her that the only way you can defeat a vampire is if an innocent maiden gets him to suck her blood so long that he, like, basically gets blood drunk and forgets to go to bed before the sun comes up and the sun gets him. Orlok decides it's it's time to, to, to eat Ellen. Hutter has uselessly fallen asleep uh, at his post. I mean, she does wake him up, but, like, gets him to leave. Yeah, she she tells him to go get Professor Bulver to help, which is just a way to get him out of the house so Orlok will come and get her, so that she can sacrifice herself to destroy Orlok. So he shows up, and that's when we get kind of the most, like, like other than the ship scene, probably the most iconic imagery in the film. Definitely. Orlok is creeping up staircases, but it's just his shadow. Um, or he's in, like, that really iconic pose of, like, one hand behind one hand in front, going up the stairs. And opening um, the door, and it's just his shadow. Yeah, with, like, his nails outstretched. His nails, uh, shadows outstretched. Um, and then, of course, the shadow of the hand going up Ellen's nightgown, and then just with the sting of the music, clamps his hand around her heart, and she reacts mm-hmm. in, like, a really powerful move. Yeah. So he spends all night uh, sucking her blood. Somehow it takes Hutter all night to, like, get to Bulver, wake Bulver up, and bring him back. And they're, like, casually walking down the street. Yeah, and this, and this town's real tiny because you can see uh, the house that Orlok stays in from the windows of Knox's business where Hutter works, and Hutter lives across the street from that house. So, like, this is a real small town. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> um, so by the time uh, Bulver... Oh, I forgot about something because it's so completely useless to the film. Oh, Nock escaping, running random people saying that Nock's the vampire? Mm-hmm, yeah, so everybody's been dying of plague, and people think that because Nock has escaped, that it's Nock. So we get a scene of basically like the town mob chasing after Nock for a while, and then they recapture him and put him back in the sanitarium. It has nothing to do with anything. It just builds suspense while we're waiting for Orlok to go kill Ellen. Yeah, I think it was a way to try to have action, because otherwise... Yeah, it's a very slow-paced film. Yeah, and I think the film would be stronger without that mm-hmm. stuff, but clearly Murnau disagreed. <laughs> so, the sun comes up, uh, and Orlok's like, ah, shit, and he tries to leave, and passes by the window, and the sun's rays get him, and he turns to dust. 
and we get to cut to Nock, who's back in the sanitarium, so that Nock can explain to us that Orlok is dead, because he's telepathically linked with Orlok, too. Uh, and then, finally, Hutter and Bulver get there, but it's too late, because uh, Ellen's dead. The end. Yeah. Well, I mean, we get some shots of people looking sad. Right. And then a final shot of just a crumbling old castle. That's the last shot of the film. I think it's supposed to be the idea of, like, Orlok's legacy is crumbling. Mm. It's it's symbolic as shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what do we want to talk about there, Sarah? Gosh, I think, um, yeah, I think this movie is good, but it could be so much tighter. I think it could probably be 20 minutes shorter. Yeah, it's got a lot of filler. There's, there's, it's hard to sometimes figure out what's filler and what's Murnau's deliberate pacing. Because, you know, that's why I brought up pacing, like, first and foremost. Because, like, there's so much stuff where it's just, why are we seeing all these scenes of Hutter being an idiot and people being idyllic and happy and stuff that has nothing to do with anything? But I think that's about setting up contrast. One of the things that Murnau does throughout the film is he cuts to scenes of nature. Yeah. Constantly. And just scenes of water or scenes of the sun or scenes of trees or whatever. And they're not just there to be establishing shots or be uh, a cut to seagulls so that we can edit to something else and have a transition. I think they're really there as contrasts. I totally agree. If we're looking at the film as a whole, Mm -hmm. I got more of the sense of like when Orlok's coming on the boat, Ellen's freaking out. Like, oh, he's coming, he's coming, I need to go to him. And it's ambiguous whether she's talking about Orlok or if she's talking about Cutter. Yeah, that's a good moment. But we keep cutting back, as she's doing, like, the sleepwalking thing, to these waves crashing on the shore. Mm -hmm. And then cutting to the boat that Orlok is on. Mm -hmm. And it's not like he's gonna ride the boat up to the shore to where Ellen is. But I got the feeling of, like, this unrelenting pressure. Yeah, he uses nature shots symbolically to you know, punctuate and illustrate and pace the film. And I think um, any scene with Shrek uh, as Orlok, and it's it's perhaps worth stating that Shrek is the German word for fear. It is his real name, Max Shrek, (laughs) but... It's worth saying. Any any scene where, where Shrek is playing Orlok, those scenes are, like, electric. Uh, they're riveting. Any scenes without Orlok in it are frequently, like, kind of boring or, or even comedic. Like, I had forgotten how much, like, sure, like, intentional comic relief there is in this film from Hutter just being an idiot to Nock kind of being very goofy. But I think that those scenes are useful in building the contrast, that, that Orlok is more horrific because he's so clearly put apart from everyone else in the film and what the rest of the film feels like, so that when he comes into a scene, we feel that chill fall across the whole film because mm-hmm. uh, it's so different from everything else. But I think you're right. I think there's a lot of fat on these bones. I mean, even just looking at the last act where we cut to the family, friend's wife freaking out in the middle of the night, it's set up as if Orlok's going to come to attack her or if she's already been attacked. But it's just this one-off scene just to show terror. And we don't need that. We don't need to see the terror because we're already seeing the effects of the plague happening. We don't need to see, fine, you want action, keep the knock chase, but... It really does stop the movie dead in its tracks, though, for, like, a good little bit before we go back to what we are caring about. Like, I always kind of get taken out of the movie during that sequence. Yeah. We were like, oh, yeah, this stuff is in here. Uh, When we cut to the professor talking about, like, wasn't this Venus flytrap just like a vampire? No. (laughs) I mean, like, that's another moment of where it feels like it stops the pacing, but I think it's adding to this idea of contrasting with nature 
because it's like nature itself is just as horrific. Mm. I think that this, a lot of what you're talking about is furthering my theory that Henrik Galene did not finish reading the book. <laughs> because a lot of these weird scenes of Professor Bulver and um, Annie, who's the wife of the family friend Harding, yeah. and these things that are there but never go anywhere, they make sense if you've read Dracula, because they evolve into other things. You know how, like, when you get uh, a book series, say, adapted to television, and they maybe catch up with where the books are at, and they have to just scramble and come up with, like, a new ending? This kind of feels like that. <laughs> um, because he's adapting Dracula up to a certain point, and then he just throws on a new ending because he's taken, you know, an hour to adapt the first eight chapters of that book. And it's like, oh, well, we need to wrap things up now, and there's this new ending that Murnau crafts. Like, the adaptation cuts a lot of characters from the novel and simplifies the cast, but there's still, like, a lot of characters that you don't need who have no purpose. And the ones, like, that we've brought up over and over again, you have Nock, Harding, Annie, Bulver, and Seifers. If you compare them to the book, they're altered versions of Renfield, Holmwood, Lucy, Van Helsing, and Seward. And they get very little to do beside fill time and space or deliver exposition, uh, Nock is kind of just a diversion from the story, like we've already said. Uh, Professor Bulver is completely useless compared to Van Helsing. You know, his first scene where he's uh, explaining things that are similar to the vampire in nature, that's a Van Helsing scene from the novel. Yeah. But then he never gets involved in the story. Hutter goes to get him at the end of the book to come help, and by the time he's shown up, the vampire's dead, and so is Ellen. Like, too late... You know, Annie is Lucy, and in the novel, Lucy gets attacked by the vampire and turned into a vampire herself. And here, like you said, we see this scene of her asleep at night, and then she gets woken up by something, and she's terrified, and then that's the last we see of that. You know, it's sort of like if you were you were a little bit into everybody's subplots, and now you just have to end things, and you're like, well, who do I got for my cast? And you decide, oh yeah, let's have Ellen be the hero and sacrifice herself. Because that's a totally original ending compared to Dracula. I mean, you know... Mina doesn't save herself. Everybody has to go and save her. She's the damsel in distress of that story. Here, Ellen instead gives this heroic sacrifice to save the day. Yeah, I really like Ellen because of that. I think Ellen's agency is really great, um, especially how it contrasts to Hutter's moronic tendencies. Yeah, the fact, that, the fact that Hutter just gets kind of dragged along by the story at any given point, whereas Ellen takes action. Yeah. I was thinking about if these people, if these characters are meant to represent different kinds of moods, like archetypal moods or something. Okay. So Hutter is like the free spirit. Like he gets terrified, but like it's almost comical how quickly he goes from being like, oh, it's such a great day. Holy shit, there's a vampire. Like He's a little bit childlike. Yeah. And then um, Orlok is obviously the the fear and the mm -hmm. terror, um, but also kind of disgust. Mm -hmm. And then Ellen is the anxiety about what the future will hold. Yes, I. that's a really good, yeah, I would agree with that. That's a really good analysis. Because she's totally fine just, like, hanging out with her potted plants and playing with this kitten. As soon as Hutter shows up with some cut flowers, she's really upset that now these flowers' lives have been cut short. She's like, why did you kill these flowers? Uh -huh. um, and I know that that's part of a thing of setting up the tone of the film. Uh-huh. But every little thing with even, um, you know, she's 
sitting on the beach waiting for Hutter to come back, but she, the beach is a graveyard as well. Yeah, it's got all these these crosses on it. And the fact that like she has these anxious dreams that cause her to sleepwalk. Mm-hmm reading the book that a maiden can save the day she's like anxious about it but she like goes for it anyways Mm -hmm. uh she definitely feels despite being like who seems to be the one who needs the most care with harder leaving her with family friends because she gets so anxious about him leaving Mm -hmm. she's the hero at the end of the day like she takes charge she's the adult Mm -hmm. to his child child Yeah. yeah she's definitely a very interesting character because she's so different from mina in the novel, and she seems like a pretty unique creation. Uh, Greta Schroeder probably gives the other good performance of the film. Her and, and Max Schreck is Orlock. I think the rest of the cast is ranges from just kind of there to a little bit ridiculous. You've got uh, Nock, of course, is very broad and comedic, and uh, Gustav as Hutter is, uh, like, if you think you've seen broad, silent film acting, like, wait till you see this guy. This guy's... <laughs> Very broad. Like, did he train in acting with D.W. Griffith? Like, <laughs> I, I think he trained in acting uh, with, like, a, a kindergarten class. Yeah. Yeah, it's... That makes sense. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about thematics and story. I just want to dive a little bit more into visuals for a second. Sure. So let's talk about Orlok. I would think that Orlok's appearance is probably, like, the most unique and well-remembered part of this movie. Yeah, between his cotton hair around his ears, <laughs> his, like, pointy ears, uh, kind of his, um, hawk kind of nose, his eyes especially, uh, but, of course, his nails. It's funny, because, like, before the break you were talking about the traditional appearance of a vampire, one of the things you mentioned was longer nails, and all of a sudden my brain clicked. Because, yeah, Orlok has no hair, mm-hmm. uh, except for these, like you said, little tufts around his ears. His ears are, are very pointy, he's got a pointy nose, these deep sunken in eyes, bushy eyebrows. Um, he's got the long nails, which get longer as the film goes on. He stands up straighter as the, uh, he oh, kills more people. You're totally right, and I never noticed that before. Yeah. That's, yeah, you're totally right. He also doesn't have the traditional vampire fangs where the fangs are canine fangs. Yeah. He has uh, rodent fangs. He has two front buck pointy teeth. The overall appearance of Orlok is rat-like. He's like a rat carrying the bubonic plague across his... Yeah, across Europe. Yeah, it's it's rat-like because the film is identifying vampires with rodents and the spread of disease. That's Mm -hmm. what's going on here. It's so iconic as an appearance because it's such a contrast, really, uh, in hindsight, rather, it's it's such a contrast with like the suave gentleman of the night that you get later with Lugosi's Dracula, mm-hmm. and to such an extent that like to this day, there are basically just two types of vampire in popular culture. Right, you're either Dracula or you're Orlok if you're a pop culture vampire. Where do Buffy vampires fit in there? They because... have both. They have both because right. the, the master in season one is Orlok, and like when they go evil or whatever, and they get their Star Trek bumpy heads, they're more um, Orlockian. But, like, yeah, the Master is Orlock, and then you have, like, Angel and Spike, who are more the, like, suave Dracula type. Yeah. And Dracula himself shows up at one point, but it's yeah. beside the point. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of, like, bringing it back to Contagion rather mm-hmm. than sexual undertones. Like, there's no sexual things in this movie at all, 
which is probably for the best because dude is a well, creeper. There, there's a little bit of a sexual thing. When? Um, well, I have. It's part of a, a bit of a discussion of the ending. Okay. Well, we can get to there then. Yeah. I was wondering why we have had all of these fictional um, accounts of vampires that, like, the very first one that's published already has these sexual undertones. And then we have this movie, the very first film appearance of a vampire, and it's back to the pestilent imagery. So I looked up what kind of stuff was going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, So obviously we had, like, the 1918 Spanish influenza stuff still happening worldwide, and the idea of it being worldwide I thought was really interesting because everywhere Orlok goes, we hear of a plague outbreak, yeah, even before, millions. Even before he gets on the ship, the port town in Romania that he leaves from has an outbreak. Yeah, so it's almost like one of the theories around the plague was the miasma theory, and it's as if that miasma follows him. Mm-hmm. Um, there were several outbreaks of the plague throughout time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but they're kind of organized by, like, how large they are. Mm -hmm. So, like, the one that we think of in the Middle Ages, that was actually the second Mm -hmm. outbreak. The third was actually happening right um, around the turn of the century, around 1890s to early 1900s, in China and India. Mm -hmm. There's actually, in Australia, between 1900 and 1925, 12 smaller outbreaks. Mm -hmm. Smaller as in... Not, like, six billion people, but, like, still quite a lot of people. It's not like 12 people died. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, there's even still cases of the plague happening. Yeah, there was, like, a, I remember, like, one happened recently and it caught the news because it's such a rare thing, right? Yeah, about 200 people die of it per year now. Hmm. Which, like... to, like, <laughs> what it was before. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, taking medieval history in university, like, it was a, a enormous chunk of the European population was lost to the Black Death. Yeah. Yeah. So I think because of these outbreaks happening, Mm -hmm. that's just the Spanish flu and the bubonic plague. I didn't Mm -hmm. look at cholera. I didn't look at anything else. I was also thinking of, like, what was happening in Germany around this time. And, like, we've talked about that quite a lot in, like, the previous German films. Yeah, we talked about, like, a plague outbreak that happened around the end of World War I, right? With the, uh, the Weimar Republic coming in and stuff. Yeah. So pestilence is a big topic, I think, for Germans right now, or, uh... In 1922. In 1922. And especially the idea of, like, global stuff, because we just had the First World War. hmm I wonder if another element of it, too... I totally agree with your analysis. I wonder if another element, too, is that, you know, this film strikes a little bit closer to the core of the cause of vampiric folklore, because those European literatures from, you know, Polidori and... La Fanu and Stoker are these kind of Western European guys who are way separated from those Serbian villages. But, like, if you're in Germany, like, you're a lot closer to Eastern Europe. You're a lot closer to Czechoslovakia, Serbia. You aren't, you don't have this lens of it being a foreign thing. I also wonder, just on a practical note, if Galeen thought bringing it back to its roots would help differentiate it enough so they could avoid the copyright. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. So I want to talk about the ending and how it relates to these themes we've been talking about. Murnau came up with the ending. Uh, Mm -hmm. Galeen's ending was that, was was similar, but it was, um, Ellen was going to stake Orlok. He was going to come to suck her blood. She was going to lure him in. She was going to stake him. And she was going to live. Uh, and Murnau's ending is she sacrifices herself, he drinks too long, and the sun gets him. So in Murnau's ending, 
Ellen's purity and innocence is emphasized, which ties, like you were saying, all the way back to her taking offense at killing flowers, of all things. But even though she's, like, supposed to be pure and innocent, she's Hutter's wife. She's not his fiance. Mm -hmm. And she seems, to me, I totally agree with your read of her as being someone who's suffering from a mental health illness, someone who has anxiety. She seems to me to be depressed. I read her as depressed. Mm -hmm. She loves Hutter, but she isn't as happy around him as he is around her. You know, he often in this film hugs her and is smiling and she's just kind of like looking off into space over his shoulder. She's troubled. She's brooding. The Book of Exposition, the the monster (laughs) manual, declares that only an innocent maiden can stop the vampire. So that kind of, to me, heavily implies that Ellen and Hutter have not consummated their marriage yet because that's what the definition of innocent maiden is yeah i wonder we don't get a sense of how long they've been married Mm -hmm. the idea that he goes out to get her flowers at the beginning to me implies newlyweds Mm -hmm. but you know in, in 1838 like if you you know consummate your relationship early enough on in a marriage like that could be grounds for divorce like it's odd yeah and it to me, comes back to this idea that you're talking about that she might be not well and that, she, you know, he's protective of her. That that maybe there's something there with her where, like, you know, she needs to be protected, she needs to be cared for, and maybe that means that they haven't really quite gotten around to things yet, you know? The introduction of this pure maiden idea into the story, for me, does restore the sexual undertone from the novel that's otherwise absent from the film, you know? You're right, there's no other sexual stuff in the film. Like, the brides are gone, for one thing. Yeah. And, you know, Orlock isn't sexual. But the fact that the climax of the film hinges on her being a virgin definitely restores some, some, you know, virginity under threat and some, and linking of sex and disease and these sorts of ideas come back into the story uh, when they'd otherwise been excised. You know, the the death of Orlok by the cleansing light of the sun, the symbolism of purity and light destroying disease and death, like, it's pretty, pretty clear. But I wonder if it doesn't confuse things. Just thinking about the fact that this is Murnau's ending tacked onto Galeen's script, and the rest of the film is saying vampires are disease, right? And, like, in real life, how you defeat disease is with medicine. So it would make sense, like, allegorically for Orlok to be defeated by Bulver and Seifers. But it's remarkable how ineffective science and rationality in this film are uh, compared to Stoker's novel, where in Stoker's novel, yeah, Professor Van Helsing saves the day. But here, Bulfer's useless. Uh, Orlok's a disease, but he's defeated by the sacrifice of a woman for the love of her husband, you know, which A, kind of makes Orlok seem like he's beyond the power of science to defeat, I guess. And, you know, like you said, gives Ellen a lot of agency and prioritizes her role in the story. But it kind of confuses the allegory a bit for me, because it's like, I mean, I guess it's purity defeats sickness or something. I mean, is this confused or does it make more sense than I think it does? I think on a practical level, if you're at four acts, you have one act left and you're like, shit, let's wrap it up. Who's the last person who has a scene with Orlok? It's Ellen. We'll have Ellen save the day in Mm -hmm. whatever form that means. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think the themes there get confused because of this, like, let's wrap it up. Uh, Bulver doesn't really get to do anything, even in just those few scenes. Mm -hmm. Like, we could cut out everyone except for Hutter, Ellen, and Orlok. And have a movie. 
and have a movie. Yeah. Uh, if you really wanted to bring in more of that tension between nature and supernatural stuff that you get with the Venus flytrap, like a vampire mm-hmm. thing, you could have Boulder. But you don't need all of these other people. Mm-hmm. So I see why you're thinking innocence and purity being tied to being a virgin, because that's what it's always been. Yeah, like, I mean, the tradition... I mean, this is a film set in 1838, using the term. And, and the Book of Exposition's even older than that, because they go out of the way to have it use, like, old-fashioned linguistics in, in how it's written. And it's referring to uh, a maiden, specifically an innocent maiden, and, like, the definition of maiden is virgin. Yeah. She, she comes off as so fragile, mm-hmm. right? She has all these fainting spells. She's anxious at the thought of danger, of, like, mm-hmm. being left alone. These sleepwalking spells where she goes off and she's, like, balancing on the banister of the balcony. Mm-hmm. It seems more like... I didn't read it that way, that mm-hmm. she has to be a virgin to do this. It mm-hmm. seemed more like pure of heart, which I think she has. I, I, I think that's why she's so anxious. Um, and I think that makes the beginning part of, like, why did you kill these flowers to bring me a bouquet kind of make a bit more sense. Mm-hmm. She doesn't like senseless death. Yeah. But this is, to quote Batman, this would be a good death. Right. I think that the film is 100% saying, like, you know, that purity is trumping the vampire. However you want to define purity. Yeah. Um, whether that's... Because she's, she's pure in every way, right? You could read it literally, or she definitely is still pure of heart and all these things. I just wonder how that intersects with the vampire as disease metaphor of the film, other than in a very basic sense of, like, the opposite of diseased is pure, right? Like... <laughs> it's also an interesting thing because Orlock represents the physical disease... And Ellen, if she's coded this way and we're reading it correctly, Uh she's the mental disease, right? Mental illness. Uh So it's kind of a neat idea of, again, thinking of these two characters as archetypes Uh for these things. Like, they take down each other in a weird way. Yeah, that's true. They're both destroyed, right? Like, everyone else gets to live, but they're dead. Which, you know, brings us back around to this being a horror film because, of course, Ellen dies, She's, you've said several times that she's a hero, but she doesn't make it out alive, so the only characters we're left with... Are survivors. Yeah. There was one thing that was a neat idea. The opening bit, or at some point, when describing what Orlok is and vampires in general, there was like the tainted dirt from the Black Plague, the Black Mm -hmm. Death. Uh-huh. in and around the castle or something. Uh-huh. And that's his dirt. Uh-huh. And that's the dirt he brings with him. It made me wonder if Orlok himself was a plague victim. Oh. Being a victim of the plague and then becoming the plague personified. That's an interesting headcanon. Yeah, because, I mean, Orlok's based on Dracula, but he's not Dracula. He doesn't have the same backstory. He doesn't have the same connection to a real historical figure. He can kind of be whatever. And so it makes him a little more mysterious mm-hmm. than Dracula and open to those interpretations. I'd never really thought of that, but that is a very interesting way to think about it. I think one of the fun things about Orlok is that he's got a little bit of that mystery to him. Yeah. So looking at the list, do you have kind of like a, a sense of where this should go? So currently, Phantom Carriage is number one. Mm-hmm. I feel like because of how Nosferatu wanders all over like it has 
it's a good movie. It could be so much tighter. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's definitely below number one. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think Phantom Carriage is better. I think, like, you're totally right about the way Nosferatu wanders. I also think that on a technical level, Phantom Carriage is better. Phantom Carriage yeah. is shot better. Phantom Carriage is edited better. Special Fa- effects. Phantom Carriage has better special effects. The, the special effects in Nosferatu are real good unless you've seen Phantom Carriage. <laughs> and then you've kind of seen, like, everything that Nosferatu's trying to do done way better. Like, Nosferatu's innovative, and it's doing a lot of stuff for the first time, but because it's innovative and doing stuff for the first time, it kind of stumbles on some of the things it's trying to do. What year was Phantom Carriage? 1921, like the previous year. Okay. Um, it's the last episode we did, so... Yeah, no, I was just double-checking, because Nosferatu, it came out February 22, so... It might have been made during the same time, mm-hmm. but, like, no time to respond. No, to yeah, absolutely. Like, it, there's no way that they could have learned any lessons from Phantom Carriage, but Phantom Carriage is still superior. Definitely. Um, so what's number two? So number two on the list is Caligari. My range is kind of below Phantom Carriage for sure, but above Eerie Tales, which is sitting at four. So what's number three? Student of Prague. Hmm. I was thinking a lot about Caligari, like, during Nosferatu, because of the shadow stuff. We had that whole discussion in the Caligari episode about the shadow scene, mm-hmm. when... It's when Cesare kills Alan. And how much that would have inspired Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. It's tough to compare these two, because Caligari was all sets, and Nosferatu's all location. on location. Yeah, they're stylistically very different. They're also both, like, titans of German 1920s horror, right? Like, this is kind of like the Coker-Pepsi fight, or the (laughs) Star Trek-Star Wars fight, or the DC-Marvel fight. Like, I feel like either way we swing on this, we're gonna get some angry responses from some people. I think on the technical level of how these movies are constructed, Caligari is tight. Yeah, Caligari is like a brilliant short story where every character matters, every scene matters, every action matters, and it all comes together like a perfect puzzle. Nosferatu's more elegiac. It's more like a, an atmospheric tone poem establishing like a mood and giving you an atmosphere than it is about kind of telling a story because the story's a little bit all over the place. And I mean, Nosferatu's more subtle in its creation of a mood, because that's what expressionism is supposed to do. So mm-hmm. Caligari's like, fist in your face, here's the mood, mm-hmm. whereas, yeah, Nosferatu wants to be a bit more subtle about it. There was an interesting quote from Roger Ebert about Nosferatu, where he said that, you know, in the context of being a, a modern-day human and knowing what <laughs> modern-day horror is like, Nosferatu doesn't scare us, but the film still haunts us. Ebert's great. <laughs> the boat stuff scares me so much. Uh, I was very happy when you were like, okay, I need to pause after this to go to the bathroom because I needed a breather. <laughs> um, so I would say that Nosferatu goes under Caligari. Nosferatu with Student of Prague, they're both slow-paced and stuff. Student of Prague is definitely tighter. Yeah. But it's kind of like, uh, here's a romantic drama. Just kidding, it's a horror. Whereas this is like... Horror is in the title. Right. So I feel like Nosferatu can go above Student of Prague. I mean, they have a similar thing of, like, starting in the real world and slowly amping up the scary, but I think that the scary that Student of Prague amps up to is, like, the twist ending of, like, a a Twilight Zone episode (laughs) where it's like, oops, you killed your own dark side, now you're dead, kind of thing. Whereas the horror that, like, Nosferatu amps up to is, like, 
disease is coming for you and everyone you know, and all of you will die. And the only way you'll be safe is if people you love die along the way. Yep. Okay. I- I'd agree with that then. I-, I definitely agree that Caligari, they're very different films. There's stuff I like more about Nosferatu. Uh, I'd rather watch the films that Nosferatu has inspired than the films that Caligari has inspired. <laughs> but I think you're right. I think on the basis of Caligari being so tightly constructed that it is, and, and us identifying these story problems with Nosferatu, that I think it goes below. So I'll agree with that. Cool. So entering the list at number three is Nosferatu, Eine Symphonie des Grounds, uh, below Cabin of Dr. Caligari and above Student of Prague. What are we watching next week, Ben? So next week, we're watching a movie that I do not think belongs on this list. <laughs> yes. But is definitely worth talking about. Uh, and that is Haxon, Witchcraft Through the Ages from 1922. Oh, boy. Listeners, I fought hard for us to watch this movie because, yeah, we, we'll talk about it in the episode. Ben does not believe it's a horror movie. And I agree, but I, yeah, it, it is something that we need to be watching on this podcast. So, so uh, if you'd like to see this list that we've just gotten up to 18 entries on, wow. uh, you can see it at ScreamScenePodcast at Tumblr.com. Uh, And that's also where you can find links to the Scream Scene playlist. It's where you can find our uh, ask box where you can submit a film if you think we've missed something or appeal a decision if you disagree that Dr. Caligari is better than Nosferatu. You can find us on Twitter at at underscore Scream Scene. And if you want to send us an email, you can do so at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Did I get all those right, Sarah? You got all those right, Ben. Great. (laughs) A new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can subscribe to us through iTunes, and we are hosted on SoundCloud. Yeah, please leave us a review on iTunes. That's how other people can find out about this really awesome podcast, if I do say so myself. And uh, it would be really cool to see what you guys think. Don't be afraid to leave us comments on SoundCloud as well. Don't be afraid to add us on Twitter or email us. We uh, love getting feedback of any kind. Yeah, we watch scary movies. We ourselves are not scary. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so uh, until next week, Creatures of the Night. Good night. (laughs) Bye. Bye.